assumption is always that your information is already on the dark web. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, my conversation with Shai Cohen. He's from TransUnion. And we're going to be talking about identity fraud and how that has been at the center of many of the digital COVID-19 scams. So what's a con game? It's a fraud that works by getting the victim to misplace their confidence in the con artist. In the world of security, we call confidence tricks social engineering – and as our sponsors at Know Before can tell you, hacking the human is how organizations get compromised. What are some of the ways organizations are victimized by social engineering? We'll find out later in the show. All right, Joe, let's uh, start with some quick follow-up here. Uh, We had uh, several listeners uh, wrote in in response to uh, some comments we made about uh, bank apps. Right. And I believe you had mentioned that uh, bank websites are are very good about logging you out. And we heard from several people that said that uh, bank mobile apps do the same. Okay, good. These days that uh, they don't mess around, that <laughs> if you're inactive, it doesn't take long and they uh, they will log you out. I'm glad to know that. My ignorance on that is based solely on the fact that I do not use mobile banking apps. I sit down on my PC and I, I use the web interface. So we had uh, uh, some people write in to say that in response to our conversation about uh, the Maryland man having his identity stolen. They wanted to remind us that state retirees in Florida are not eligible for unemployment benefits, so they don't have to worry about them being shut off. That right. makes perfectly good sense. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So again, thanks to everybody for uh, writing in. Uh, we do appreciate uh, hearing from you. Let's move on to our stories this week. Mine is uh, not so much a story as it is uh, a website, something that I was not aware of. I found it pretty interesting. This is a website called bitcoinabuse.com. I'm not 100% sure if this is actually run by the folks responsible for Bitcoin or not. It's not clear. It sort of seems like it might be, but I I can't say for sure. In the the digging around I did on the site, it wasn't really clear. It, It seems like it is. Well, there's nobody really responsible for running Bitcoin. Bitcoin kind of runs itself. It was released into the wild, and now it's just taken off. Gotcha. So this organization uh, at BitcoinAbuse.com, they have uh, taken it upon themselves to run this database of Bitcoin addresses that are being abused, that are being used for bad things, Uh for crimes, for ransomware, for extortion, and and so on and so forth. Uh, And so what they've got here, they have a system where you can file reports, you can view reports, uh, you can monitor stolen Bitcoin. So if there's a, a Bitcoin account that you want to keep an eye on, see if uh, someone's been biding their time and, and try to transfer money out or try to launder some of that money that's in Bitcoin. You can basically have it uh, send you an update if, if anything happens within a certain Bitcoin address. And it's pretty interesting to sort of page through here. One of the things uh, in in their about, they say, um, Bitcoin is anonymous if used perfectly. Luckily, no one is perfect. Even hackers make mistakes, and it only takes one mistake to link stolen Bitcoin to a hacker's real identity. Yeah, I'm going to take issue with that 
statement, Bitcoin is anonymous. It's anonymous if no one can associate you with the public-private key pair. As soon as someone can associate you with that public-private key pair, all anonymity is gone. All anonymity is gone. Every one of your transactions on that public-private key pair is available for scrutiny. The only level of anonymity you have is that disassociation of your actual physical identity with your Bitcoin identity. As soon as that bridge is connected, the game is over. Hmm. So just looking at this database, uh, for example, uh, on their homepage here, they, they list 101 reports in the past day, 879 in the last week, uh, over 4,200 in the last month. So this is an active thing. And uh, mm-hmm. if you go through and look at the uh, recently reported addresses, there are many of them. And I'll just click on one randomly here. And of course, Bitcoin addresses are basically, you know, random strings of characters. I don't, yep. I don't know how many characters long it is, but it's a lot. For example, here's one that has eight different reports. Uh, it's a blackmail scam uh, and it'll have descriptions. This one, for example, looks like a lot of things in Chinese. A lot of them are, you know, different languages and so on. But it'll tell you what it is. If it's a, This one's a, a sextortion scam. Uh, it tells you the a number of Bitcoin transactions that have, that have taken place under this address, how much they've gathered. I'm glad to see that a lot of these have gathered no Bitcoin. Oh, one is received. Here's one. I just clicked on it and one is received 0.0014 Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was looking at one earlier today that had received several Bitcoins. So, you know, some, and it was a uh, typical sort of sextortion thing. You know, we've accessed your your camera and we've seen you doing naughty things. And right. if you, unless you send us money, we're going to share with us with all of your friends and family. Uh, and it seemed to be working. They'd gathered, you know, several Bitcoin, which is thousands of dollars. It's interesting. They have an API so you can monitor the database that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's an interesting tool, you know, valuable. I could see researchers, law enforcement could make good use of this. Uh, of course, to keep this thing running, they take donations and wait for it. Bitcoin. Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Which I suppose is uh, is fitting. Overall, you know, it seemed like a, a good effort. One of those things where some folks have gotten together, you know, good guys and are trying to do some good things to uh, try to cut down on the abuse or at least document the abuse of Bitcoin. Yeah. What's your take on this? Well, I'm, I'm looking at one right now, Dave, and, and it says the abuse type is a dark net market. And this person is upset because they paid this Bitcoin address some money and they did not get provided with a poker cheat. <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> I'm so sorry. Here's what I'm looking at that has a bunch of reports on it. This one has looks like 13 pages of reports for hmm. uh, blackmail scams. And they've actually received two transactions with a net total of 0.18 Bitcoin. So this is interesting. I mean, I could get, this is a rabbit hole. I could go down all all day long. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's an interesting component of it. As you say, you can poke around and look at these reports and and it'll give you a nice sampling of the kinds of scams that are out there. You can also sort of get a sense for what's working and what's not. Absolutely. Some of these have even copied the email into the description of the record. This would come in really handy, Dave, for exactly what you're (laughs) suggesting. Right, exactly, exactly. (laughs) All right, well, uh, that's uh, what I have this week. It's uh, bitcoinabuse.com. Interesting to check out and uh, spend a few minutes on there. This is fascinating. Some educational uh, components there as well, if this is something that interests you. Joe, what do you have for us this week? Dave, I have something from Brian Krebs and Krebs on Security, and he talks about the joy of owning an OG email account. And we've talked about this before, but for our listeners who might be new to the show, OG stands for Original Gangster. 
Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it is a username that you get when you are an early adopter of a platform. Right. For example, the amazing Dave Bittner on Twitter <laughs> is at Bittner, B-I-T-T-A-R, yeah. like your last name. And that's great. Would you categorize that as an OG uh, account? I would. I would say, you know, because you don't have any numbers after that, right? No, no, just just got got the whole surname, Lock, just Stock, your last and Barrel. Name. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have at Kerrigan, but somebody else already has that. Um, right. I'd even like to have at Joe Kerrigan, but I think somebody else already has that. So I had to go with at JT Kerrigan. Yeah, uh, uh, which was slumming, yeah. Right. <laughs> but I do have another username, and I won't tell it publicly here, but I do have a, a six-character username that's kind of unusual that I kind of consider an OG username, but it really only applies to me, and 80% of the time and 90% of the time, I can get it. In fact, there's only one case where I haven't gotten it, and that's at Twitter. But I had somebody ask me for it on Instagram because this person was a rapper who wanted to buy the name from me. Unfortunately, I said no for this guy because it is actually my internet identity. It's like my username on everything because Mm. nobody else uses it and I like it. So I don't know if I'd call it OG because it's unique to me. Uh, It's not something that everybody wants. But Brian Krebs set up what he called an OG account on Gmail 16 years ago when you had to be invited to Gmail by another Gmail user. Do you remember that? Mm Mm-hmm. I do remember that, yeah. If you got invited, you got to send out like something like some number of invitations. I can't remember what it was. And I never got yeah. the invitation because none of my friends wanted to help me out. But I still got my username. <laughs> Wisely, he won't publish it here because that would only lead to more things. But he does give a hint as to what it is. It's some kind of hacking term at gmail.com. So one of the things he always gets is he gets people trying to take over the account, right? Mm-hmm. And there's, they'll send mm-hmm. him phishing emails from services he doesn't use, like H&R Block, TurboTax, and iTunes, LastPass, Dashlane, and Credit Karma. And he gets these because these people are trying to get the account. Right. They're folks who collect these like trading cards. Right, exactly. And one of the things he says is these OG accounts are highly coveted. But what really amazes him, and, and me too, is that a bunch of people have chosen his account as their backup email recovery address, right? Hmm. So you go to create a new a new account somewhere and they say, what's your email address? And they, they enter this email address from Gmail that Brian Krebs actually controls. Hmm. And in my opinion, if someone does that to me and they have done that to me on numerous occasions, they've done it with, with Netflix and I've just gone in and closed the accounts. Uh, somebody did it with Instagram, set it up with one of my accounts. I can't remember if it was at Gmail or Yahoo, but My opinion is that if you use my email address to set up one of these accounts, you have essentially done me the service of creating an account for me, right? (laughs) Okay. In this case, what I've done, in in all the cases what I've done is I go in and I either close the account or I change the password and lock the uh, person out of it because I don't want my good name being associated with somebody's nefarious activities Mm -hmm. because chances are they're creating this. They may be creating this in an attempt to impersonate me. That's one of my first concerns, where they may be creating this account with the intent of deceiving other people. Uh, That's why they didn't use their actual email address, so it couldn't be tied back to them. Now, if you're going to use a throwaway account, there are tons of services out there that let you produce a temporary email address. So there's really no reason to use someone's OG or uh, even not an OG, an actual valid email address. There's no reason at all to do this. So I'm always very suspicious when people do it. 
Brian has said he has reached out to some people. He actually had one guy he talks about in this article who was using Brian's email address as his backup email address for his retirement holdings. Hmm. And he reached out to the guy and said, you shouldn't do this. I mean, if someone was doing this with retirement holdings, I would probably reach out to the person and say, you know, there's a significant amount of money here. Now, at this point in time, this is where I don't go out and just lock somebody out of their account. (laughs) This is where I actually try to make a good faith effort to get in touch with somebody because this is obviously someone who's made a mistake. They've just put in an email address for the sake of convenience in trying to fill out the retirement holdings. This is not somebody doing something malicious. If I, if I can see that they, they have gotten, you know, that this is some account where they're holding assets. That's a different question than somebody popping up an Instagram account using my name. One of the things he says, if he ever needed to order pet food, he could do it by uh, using one of the uh, accounts created at Chewy or Petco uh, <laughs> because he has access to these, these accounts. And if he ever needed a Weber grill part, he's got that ready to go. Um, <laughs> and the thing it reminds him of is a story he wrote back in, uh, when was, I can't remember. It may have been the early 2000s or the 90s, but he wrote, I remember this story coming out about the person that went out and bought the domain do not reply.com and right. then just accepted every email that came into that domain, whatever the yeah. address was. The amount of information this guy collected was staggering. There was classified information coming to that address. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. Classified information yeah. and and other kinds of financial records and all kinds of information was just going to that domain because people instead of saying do not reply at like at the cyberwire.com, they were putting the cyberwire at do not reply.com. That's the wrong way to do this. I'm sure yeah. everybody knows this now, right? Well, I think it was just sort of a throwaway kind of thing, you know, to try to remind people not to reply to this email address. They just put the return address as do not reply.com. Right. As if it wouldn't and, work if somebody registered it, right? Right. Well, and and that's, I think, what my recollection of the story from, from years ago was that this person went and, and thought to himself, well, surely someone has registered this. I wonder where all this goes. And he checked and no, no one had registered it. So on a whim, he registered it and hilarity ensued. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He tells one story about a lady in Florida who used his Gmail address as a backup for something. And he reached out to her and she screamed in all caps back at him saying that my husband's a police officer. You're trying to fish me. Uh, And of course, he just goes, well, okay, fine. But now he still gets uh, notification anytime she logs into her Yahoo account. <laughs> but you know, what's he, what's he going to do, right? This is one of the biggest problems that people are, are committing themselves to. If you lose access to your email inbox, he says you're opening yourself up to a what he calls a cascading nightmare of other problems. And then he has a link to his article about this. We've talked about this before as well. One of the reasons email accounts are so valuable is because they are the backup for everything else. If you forget right. your Facebook password, where does the password reset go? It goes to your email. If you forget your bank password, where does that password reset go? It goes to your email address. These things are incredibly important and everybody should be using a very strong password and multi-factor authentication on their email addresses that they use for these kind of things. And you should not be just filling out arbitrary email addresses, particularly for other people right? <laughs> that other people may own. Don't use an arbitrary Gmail address to create a, a throwaway account. Go to something like 10minutemail.com or Google temporary email address and use one of those services 
uh, that email address will only exist for about 10 minutes. And then you can create it. They'll actually, you actually can even receive email for about 10 minutes through their interface, click on the link and validate the email address. And then the email address is gone. So if you want to create a throwaway account, that's the way to do it. Not yeah. by using an actual email service. Right. All right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, kind of a fun one there with some of the, uh, the ramifications. Uh, of course, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, rather than referring to the catch of the day, we might start referring to some of these as the stringer of the day. Because, you know, when you go fishing and you catch a bunch of fish and you have a stringer full of fish? Uh, I've heard about that. I don't know that it's ever actually happened to me. But... <laughs> Well, I've got and I, actually, and, and I just like to point out I live next to a lake, so <laughs> right. I I get to experience many other people's success in fishing stuff and a success that has so far eluded me. Yes, but yeah. go on. <laughs> I'm with you in spirit. I have a catch of the day from multiple sources. There seems to be a Netflix themed campaign going on out there as we're recording this, and one of them came from my daughter. Uh, the hmm. sender is Netflix with a diacritic under the N. I don't know how you pronounce that N with a diacritic under it. Maybe it's Netflix. But, What's um, a diacritic? A diacritic is a uh, mark around a letter. You know, like when you have an accent over an E. Uh, like an umlaut or something like, an like that? An umlaut is a diacritic, exactly. Okay. Like I said, the first one comes from my daughter. So why don't you read the first one here? All right, it goes like this. Update current billing information. Unfortunately, we are unable to approve your payment for your next subscription cycle. Because financial institutions have rejected monthly charges, Netflix cannot receive payment. To resolve the issue, please update your payment information by pressing the button below. My favorite part of this is the button is labeled Try Again Payment. <laughs> it's the Try Again Payment button, Joe. Right. <laughs> How many of us, when the payment doesn't go through, well, the first thing you look for is the Try Again Payment button. That's the first and thing there you it look is. for, Dave. <laughs> there it is. They've it delivered says, it to you in this email. Yeah. It says, for more information, please visit the Help Center for more info or contact us. <laughs> for more information has a period after it. Yeah. Like that's a complete yeah. sentence. This is obviously someone who is uh, not a native English speaker, or if they are, they are not a very good native English speaker. Right. All right. So <laughs> the second one comes from Twitter user Megan. Her handle is at Megan is a loser. We don't think so, Megan. Um, <laughs> so this one is a little more obvious, <laughs> but they wanted you to right. read this one. Netflix subscription renewal failed. Hi, there is a trouble to charge your recent membership extension for next period of month. It may appear that the information that you give us is invalid. However, we attempt again in next few days. During this time, you won't be able to enjoy our service as usual. To fix this, simply just update your information below. Now, this button says update details. Right. So, uh, right, that's a that's a legit button. Yep. We are sorry for the uncomfortable for you, <laughs> but you can always go back anytime to us by update your details. <laughs> Yeah. And finally, this one from Rebecca Vaughn at Becca Bloom on Twitter, and it reads like this. Hi, we're having trouble to authorize your payment profile on file, but we're unable to do so. Do not worry. We'll test your payment in the next few days. To keep subscribing to Netflix, you will need to update your payment details. And then the button is labeled Update Account Security. We will froze your account until you update your payment information. So it's obvious that, to me that there's some kind of campaign going on out there. With mm. these, 
and somebody's just fishing for Netflix accounts. And I think that these have some kind of value out there. So they may be trying to get payment information as well, but I think probably there's also an attempt here to steal the Netflix account because I think they probably sell these so people can watch Netflix for a little, very little money. Yeah. I would think also Netflix is so ubiquitous, especially these days, right. that chances are if you hit someone up, the odds are someone probably has a Netflix account. All right. Well, that is our catch of the day. So let's return to our sponsor, Nobefore's question. Carrots or sticks? Stu Showerman, Nobefore's CEO, is definitely a carrot man. You train people, he argues, in order to build a healthy security culture. And sticks don't do that. Approach your people like the grown-ups they are, and they'll respond. Learning how to see through social engineering can be as much fun as learning how a conjuring trick works. You can hear more of Stu's perspectives in Nobefore's weekly Cyber Heist News. We read it, and we think you'll find it valuable, too. Sign up for Cyber Heist News at knowbefore.com slash news. That's K-N-O-W-B-E, the number four, dot com slash news. Joe, I recently uh, had the pleasure of speaking with Shai Cohen. He is from TransUnion. And our conversation focused on identity fraud and how that has been at the center of many of the online COVID-19 scams that they have been tracking. Uh, interesting stuff here from Shai Cohen. We are all about uh, you know, providing solutions to detect, prevent and detect fraud uh, while using you know, all the data assets that we have in place, you know, primarily credit data, personal data and device data that uh, TransUnion uh, have. And also using kind of you know, machine learning and, and dynamic data models to correlate against any potential fraud when it's come to account origination, account opening, account access, user authentications. And we do all of this with uh, uh, what we call a friction ride. So not to disturb too much the good actors, but also be able to detect the bad actors and, and prevent fraud before it's happening. And where does that balance land, you know, between not having too much friction, but also doing the things that you need to do there to protect your customers? It's all about, you know, the data that we have and and our ability to really have a predictive and adaptive models that know how to differentiate between when we see kind of bad actor coming into place. And we have, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, all variety of uh, uh, data elements that we kind of correlate and compare against and using models to be able to do that. So so it's all really about kind of the data assets and the machine learning capabilities uh, that let us uh, kind of uh, excel in in that area. And where do we stand today? Are are we winning this battle? I mean, in in general, are, are, are organizations able to do a good job protecting themselves? Generally speaking, yes, but the fraudsters, it's kind of an ongoing battle and the fraudsters getting much and more uh, sophisticated and, and, and the attack front is getting more complicated, especially with the new COVID-19 pandemic. We see a lot of new methods that kind of fraudsters are starting to employ in order to attack organizations, financial organizations, and consumers, obviously. And the methods keep evolving uh, in a way that we need to ongoing uh, find solutions against. The key is for organization uh, to really kind of advance the digital play because the surface has become, you know, as we 
uh, expect, especially in today's environment, more and more digitally. And as we see new methods, we kind of add more solutions uh, that can help, you know, continue and prevent any kind of fraud uh, issues, you know, account takeover, phishing, stealing, uh, you know, personal data and use it in, in a bad way, create things like synthetic identity. All these type of methods, we uh, require us to kind of stay on our toes and, and keep evolving our solutions. Now, one thing that uh, caught my eye, you recently uh, released some information about some capabilities of, of one of your document verification solutions, and uh, it involved customers being able to take a selfie and using that to compare with a photo on their identification documents? Yes, exactly. So when you provide kind of on a government issue documentations, it can contain, it's the original data that we, that we have as TransUnion, but when a fraudster comes, uh, it can actually, you know, manipulate the document in, in a few different ways. Uh, one is uh, kind of, you know, the expiration date, for example, some fake information on the document and the picture. So while we have kind of the original data and, and the right data by loading selfies, for example, we can actually compare, you know, the, the picture that you just put in when you apply for something or you, when you try to open an account against the original uh, documentations. And, and because we have, uh, you know, all the genuine uh, data about the identity, and we know also the device information, if the device in, uh, information is good or not so good, we are, again, using all this information to be able to, to correlate and link the data, the, the good data that we have against what is kind of put as part of the application. So I guess like with everything, I mean, there's there's no way to be 100% sure, but this is yet another layer that you can use to build up that level of confidence or not to, to decide whether or not someone who's trying to do something is legitimate. Correct. As I said before, it's all about, you know, the different data type and data elements and things that we can do in order to protect. You know, document verification is you know, additional elements that we are using and started to use recently, in addition to all the personal information that we already have as part of TransUnion, all the device information that we have, you know, more than uh, 7 billion devices that we kind of have across the world that we have history about, that coming from the Iovation acquisition. And all this, uh, you know, once we acquired more and more data, and, and are able to, to use it for link and to assess the validity of a transaction, it gives us, you know, what we call a fraud detection rate much higher. Uh, and also, as a result, a less false positive, right? Because that's another thing that you don't want to block a good actor. So you need to reduce the false positive. And again, once you have, you know, more elements that you know to compare against, then and, and your algorithm is better, then you have the ability to, again, increasing fraud rate and decrease false positive. For our listeners who, who are looking to uh, do a better job of, of protecting their own financial information and the, the interactions they have with the, the various uh, financial services organizations that they may deal with, do you have any advice for them? Any words of wisdom? Yes. Yeah, so first of all, the assumption is always that your information is already on the dark web, right? Uh, and the fraudster possess your information. So because of all of these threats, the consumer needs to 
kind of always make sure that they check twice before pressing on, on an email link and make sure that all the information that they have is, is being used safely and not do anything that, especially with phishing attack, right? That uh, phishing is all about, you know, send you a text, emails, phone calls, try to get your personal data. Be very careful when opening anything, any communication from someone that you don't really know. And, and also when you work with, for example, financial institutions or your a provider, make sure that their level in digitally protect your, uh, your, your data is there and they pay a lot of attention to that, right? Because consumers expect their financial institutions, anything, anyone that they do business with to have a sufficient, to be advanced digitally and especially in protecting their information. So check also who is your provider. All right, Joe, what do you think? Good interview with Shai. I have some real appreciation for what they do there at TransUnion. One of the biggest things I like that he said is some of the document verification techniques that he mentions. I'm glad to hear that this is happening at TransUnion. It keeps the general population a little more protected. Unfortunately for the rest of us, we don't really get to the opportunity to do this because we don't have access to the kind of information that TransUnion does. But I'm glad that TransUnion is doing this. They're utilizing the information that's at their disposal to verify people. Good move, good move. One of the things he said is that this is an ongoing battle, and we in the security field have been saying this for years, that this is an arms race. And as time has gone on, we've seen that arms race move from the technical area to the human area of security. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because as the technology gets better and as the software gets better, the point where it becomes much more difficult for attackers to find vulnerabilities and exploit them, then they have shifted the focus to the humans because those are a lot slower to update, I guess. Uh, But um, one of the things that Shai said, he said, the methods of fraud will keep evolving. But I would assert that the underlying concepts are not really going to change that much in terms of social engineering. We're still looking at the same kinds of scams that we've been seeing literally for centuries, that these we're trying to scare you, we're trying to appeal to your greed. Uh, We're going to get you to do something that's not in your best interest. And the upside of that is that if you train yourself, you can become aware of what those things are and thus less likely to fall for these. You can kind of inoculate yourself against these social engineering attacks. But he's right. These things are going to change. Their hooks are going to change all the time. Like right now, the big hook is COVID, right? Sure. What happens in about a month, Dave, or two months? The hook is going to change to elections in the U.S. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen. (laughs) And um, then it'll be the holiday season. Then it'll be the holiday <laughs> it'll season. It'll be tax season. Exactly. <laughs> and that's just how this goes. This is right. always going to be changing and you always have to keep your guard up and just you always have to consider what is going on in the world and why have you received this email? Chances are that this is probably a scam. Yeah. That's that's my thinking on it. Or if you approach all these emails with chances are this is a scam, then you're going to be better off. Shai talked about synthetic identities. He mentioned it very briefly and in passing, and that term fascinated me, and I hadn't heard that before. So Hmm. I I looked that up, and that is essentially where you create an identity, an attacker, a malicious actor creates an identity that is not really associated with another person. So we hear about people who have their identity stolen and then accounts open in their name. If I can create a synthetic person, a completely synthetic identity, then go out and start utilizing that identity and establishing credit and and gaining access to credit, there is nobody on the other end of that that's ever going to alert the institutions to the fact that somebody is opening a fraudulent account. And in fact, 
Not only that, but I actually will have access to all those backends, like credit monitoring services and things of that nature. So I can control that. It's a great way from a criminal perspective. It's a great way to increase your throughput, although it probably is more difficult to do. And it takes time to establish these synthetic identities because these synthetic identities have to have a, a credit report associated with them and you have to build that up. So it actually probably takes money as well to do this. Like I said, the upshot is there is nobody on the other end of it. You as the attacker or the malicious person are in complete control of it. Yeah. And finally, the last thing that Shai said that I 100% agree with is assume that your information is already leaked. That, that is a, a good assumption because chances are your information is already leaked. Thanks to <laughs> uh, companies like a uh, competitor to TransUnion, Equifax. We heard about their data breach a couple of years ago. That was great. Right. There are other breaches out there that have resulted in huge amounts of data being lost to these dark markets where you can buy and trade this information. It's out there. Your information is probably out there. Yeah. And so you have to take additional precautions like multi-factor authentication. Absolutely. Multi-factor authentication. Be suspicious of every single email you receive. Multi-factor authentication actually goes a long way in helping you prevent yourself from being abused, prevent yourself from losing access to your accounts. It is very important. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Shai Cohen for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, Know Before. They are the social engineering experts and the pioneers of new school security awareness training. Be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test, which you can find at knowbefore.com slash fish test. Think of Know Before for your security training. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. Of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our coordinating producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.